Welcome to the second season of Square Talk, an e-commerce and content production podcast where we explore business insights alongside industry professionals. Marketing, brand creation, clothes and design, product photography, you name it, we probably talk about it. My name is Philip. I am a brand manager at SquareShot, as well as the host of Square Talk. Today, we're going to chat with Stephanie and Evan, who are the driving force behind Stateless NYC a fashion design and consultant firm with a portfolio of over 90 successful brands. These guys are the stars of brand development business, and I sincerely hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome to the second season of Score Talk. I'm very, very, very happy, as you can see, to welcome Stephanie Takata, the CEO and co-founder of Stateless NYC, and Evan Palvi, the director of brand development. Uh, I'm really happy to uh, sort of kick off this season with you guys because... When uh, Evan, you and I were talking about multiple weeks ago about how crazy, how much experience you just guys have in e-commerce because you get to work with not one, but probably hundreds of brands at this point, right? So Nine, over were, ninety, yeah. Or, that's that's insane, and uh, you know some people tend to work with just one throughout the entire life, and then they have very very like catered experience towards theirs, right? And you guys have probably worked with. Well, we'll get into that with very diverse brands, right? Diverse sizes and So before we go into any brand talk, I want to start by sort of, you guys have two kind of parties, two organizations working, which is Stateless NYC and Stateless Group. So I want to kind of, uh, if you guys can explain the difference between the two, the consulting and the incubator. Sure, I, I can start that. And thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, so we started Stateless NYC, which was what you call Stateless Fashion Design and Consulting. It's based in New York City um, in 2014. And basically, it's an outsourced design, development, and production management solution for apparel companies. And we also do full brand development as well, which Evan is the director of. Um, and basically, you know, what we did in and around that time was really... I felt like there was a lot of companies entering the apparel space that didn't necessarily have the expertise to bring apparel product to market at the certain standard that consumers are um, used to, basically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, instead of building full in-house teams in the way that standard apparel companies have, a lot of these companies, because they were just entering the space, didn't have that expertise in-house and really couldn't justify the capital to build one. And so what we did was pull together a lot of our network from, like everybody on our team has extensive experience in fashion corporations, major ones. And so we pulled together a network of, um, not a network, but a team of designers, developers, technical designers, product developers, production managers, and also sort of built a wide vendor network of factories and and all the other vendors that you need to, to bring an apparel brand to life. And um, and that's what we are. So we you can hire us as an outsourced team. We also consult along the way because we work with so many clients and uh, from different industries that don't necessarily understand um, all of the details of bringing brands or apparel product to market. And so we also consult along the way, but we also do it as well uh -huh. um, and really work as that sort of all important liaison between our clients and the factories. Um, and then, you know, we brought on brand development as well. So <clears throat> in order to launch a full brand, right, you, you, yes, you need the product, but in this world, you also need to have a strong brand DNA. And so that's what Evan heads up the, the branding team and we do full 
master brands, br uh, brand style guidelines, website, lifestyle photo shoots, product shots, all of the things that you need to have a really cohesive sort of professional looking brand and, um, and then get you prepared really to enter the market in a, in a highly professional way. And so that's what Stateless is, um, Stateless Inc. And that's what we do on a sort of pay per, for our services type of mm -hmm. um, model. So you pay us and then, you know, we're your team basically. Um, and then I'll have Evan introduce what Stateless Group is so that, because there is a difference. Yeah, so a few years ago, um, we just started exploring the idea of how we can kind of offer what we offer to, to more people and lower the barrier to entry and create an opportunity to have a deeper partnership in uh, brands that we really believe in and leaders that we really believe in and want to support and um, kind of create uh, a platform for, for innovation and, uh, you know, to kind of help move the industry forward. And so we started a venture arm of our business that we call Stateless Group. And uh -huh. within that venture arm is an incubator. And so we have an incubator that is an open application platform um, where we are incubating two brands a year. And as part of that, we've created this ecosystem of amazing partnerships with companies like Neiman Marcus Group and Squareshot. And uh, we have packaging companies and uh, a, a lender that's uh, providing the selected brands with a $100,000 loan. And we have you know, all these different pieces beyond what Stateless offers, which Stephanie just described. We have all these other pieces because it takes so much to bring a, you know, apparel brand to, to market. And so um, we want to make sure that they're surrounded by the expertise, surrounded by the resources and having all of these people working together to lower that barrier to entry collectively. So all of these different partnerships are discounting, advancing or offering their services for free. And like what would otherwise cost someone hundreds of thousands of dollars is now costing them nothing. And uh, they're able to have an amazing product. They're having amazing brands, website, marketing, the whole deal and get their, their thing off the ground. And then they also are going to be surrounded by uh, connections and mentors and all sorts of other resources that can help them scale from there. Um, so that's that's yeah, basically uh, what the incubator is. There's a lot of things that I can relate to on behalf of Scoreshot, which is when you're just starting your brand, you're a founder, right? It seems almost unreasonable to uh, to uh, build a large in-house team. One, it's not a very cost-effective mm -hmm. approach, right? And so the same, like the reason why Scoreshot uh, came up on the board is because you need the same level of experience for a much smaller price and then you need it only like once or every maybe every production cycle which is like from six to nine months or something like that so it doesn't seem like a good idea to build all of that for yourself and just yes. burn through cash i guess absolutely you have to be at such a large scale for it to be efficient for you to you know have your own in-house photography studio i mean pretty much never that's that's the case and also it's just what what Squareshot provides applies to Stateless and all of our partners where just being able to concentrate expertise. And so, what, you know, we are very good at identifying what we're great at and what, mm -hmm. what we don't offer. And that's how we created the ecosystem was making sure, okay, this is what we're excellent at. In order to make a brand successful, you also need people that are excellent at these things. So, for example, we have 56 
is our marketing and e-commerce partner. They are excellent at those two things. And those are very, very growth marketing, uh, you know, complex Shopify development. Those things are very, very important. So we are just kind of identifying all those expertise. And then Squareshot, of course, all you guys do is product photography. So, you know, there's a lot of photography studios that might say they do lifestyle, they might end product and do these different things. But product photography is such a different skill set and just set of criteria and what's important and having that specific experience, specific um, technical setup and all of that that you guys have um, is really, really important. Yeah. And so we kind of take that, you know, the reason why we partnered with Squareshot and then that applies to everyone that we partnered with. Now, I just wanted to add in that, you know, it's a very people-based industry. And although it's massive, it's also small. It's one of those where um, network is kind of everything. And so whether that be network to vendors, reputable vendors, which are different Mm -hmm. than non-reputable vendors or whomever they may be, you know, what Stateless brings on both the consultancy side and the group side is that network that's been tried and tested and made sure that, you know, what what they do is to a certain standard and to cost targets and, and all of that. So trying to jump into the industry without any network or any sort of prior knowledge is almost virtually impossible. And yeah. one other great thing is uh, essentially your clients also pay for the mistakes that you've made before, essentially, right? You have the opportunity to make mistakes, right? You work with 90 brands, right? Same for us or for anyone. uh, Like, it's hard to, you can't buy it, right? You have to just go through it and you guys have, and that's such an invaluable and you can't really put a price tag on that. Absolutely. So yeah, for sure. So a lot of people come to us having already had some sort of very catastrophic expensive mistake with you know trying to work directly with a factory themselves with no prior experience so you know all like stephanie said our whole team has deep corporate experience so we know how this is supposed to operate at a high professional level and so we can take all that experience and apply it to the startup level you know we also have fortune 500 clients and stuff like that but you know a, a large percentage of our clients are startups and but we're still taking the same mentality and professionalism to to how we approach building a startup. And that saves them so much trial and error. Because also a lot of our clients, and we also encourage a lot of the people applying to our incubator, don't have to have any sort of apparel background whatsoever. They can have a business background. They can be coming from all these different angles. And a, a lot of the times, those are the people that um, bring fresh perspectives and ideas and solutions to the industry. So being able to hire stateless and have the apparel part, the brand part figured out and done expertly, then they get to kind of do what they're best at, which is, you know, bringing this fresh idea and bringing leadership and business acumen to to the business. Mm-hmm. And so what are the prerequisites for becoming a member of the incubator? What are you looking for in brands to sort of show yeah. potential? Yeah, so we, we're specifically looking to, it's, it's a few different things. So one is we want to uh, support underrepresented founders. So we just, you know, we want to make sure that the founders are, are people that um, we just believe in and feel like they're not enough people of that demographic in the, you know, in the fashion entrepreneur world. And then we also want their brand concept to be mission driven. So we wanted to be something that is going to improve our our planet and our society. Um, so some sort of positive solution to a problem in the industry or in the world. Um, 
And that can come in you know, a variety of ways. And we're not going to limit our thinking to what that could be. But we definitely know, you know enough about the, the market landscape that we are able to identify, oh, yes, this is very needed or this is new. This is, this is something that's going to be exciting. And so, um, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be high fashion. Like we're specifically in what we are calling like apparel versus fashion, even though you know, those words can be interchangeable. A lot of times people associate fashion with like runways and art and fine art. And what we are specifically focused on is clothing that is practical or, or you know, even if it is um, creative in a lot of ways, it's still serving some sort of purpose and something that, you know, more, more people can wear every day. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Stephanie mentioned is vendors. And I know from a personal experience talking to clients is that that's a whole big issue. And so how do you guys navigate through uh, vendors? What are some of your criteria for building that network that you guys already talked about before? Yeah. So when we started Stateless, we really relied on the network that our people brought and our team brought because they had been working with them for so long in, in the more corporate settings. And, you know, as as fashion entrepreneurship has grown, yes, in the United States, but now also in the world recently, you know, we're seeing a lot of countries like India explore more D to C in terms of fashion, the Middle East. And so it's really growing in terms of this sort of spirit of entrepreneurship in apparel. And that means that the factories are starting to adjust. So before, you know, it was really difficult to find companies or sorry, factories with low minimums that what we call small batch, right? So that so that these small brands aren't having to buy so deeply into their inventory and, and concern themselves with drowning in inventory, which is a is a business killer. Mm-hmm. And so um, we we really worked on building relationships with small batch factories in particular, both in the United States and abroad. And even if those factories weren't necessarily in the small batch game, presenting them with why Stateless was beneficial to work with because we do provide them with a lot of business. And so, and a lot of, so it's almost like, you know, little small brands sort of coming together under the Stateless umbrella so that they can get priority in these factories Mm -hmm. and so that they can sort of have an edge over somebody that's just going to a factory asking for small batch. Um, When we vet factories, you know, we're always trying to build our factory base. We wouldn't, it wouldn't be smart for us not to. And so when we vet them, we usually run a full development process with them, not our clients' work, but our own, to see what that process is and to see if their work sort of meets our standards. We always have boots on the ground too. We visit all of the factories that we work with. Um, and we like we really try to build relationships because again, it's a people-based industry. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that that brand founders make is thinking that your factory vendor is sort of somewhat indebted to you because you're paying them the money and therefore they should do everything that you want them to. Instead of thinking about it as a partnership and and really with your factories, you're building a partnership. They're an important business partner to you and your company. And if they feel like they wanted to invest by doing things mm-hmm. like small batch or maybe you know coming down on a cost per unit or whatever it may be, it's really an investment in building that partnership with you as your brand grows. And so I feel like you know we we operate in that way and really making sure that our partnerships with these factories are sound. We respect them. We hear them when they say they can't do something or they can do something. And um, and it's just, we just build relationships over years, you know? And that's not to say that we haven't come across factories that don't work in that way. And that's fine, but they don't fit in our 
They don't fit in our brand values, our own company values. And we just don't find it advantageous to work with with certain types of factories. So, you know, we like small family run factories. Mm. We like factories with their own missions. We're always looking for um, ethical practices and, and sustainable practices. And so, you know, it runs the gamut of what we're looking for. But um, but yeah, that's how we build our relationships. And after working for uh, with like 90 plus brands, have you sort of uh, invented like a formula for like a d ideal production cycle with like timings? Because I'm trying to sort of isolate some value for people who are either looking to just launch an e-commerce brand. So we've talked with so many people who are who come from different business, right? From either a law or something. And now they're looking to sort of bring them, their ideas to life. So I'm trying to kind of give them an instrument to like yeah. a benchmark of sorts. Totally. It's a very linear process. Yes, it's artistic and creative at its core, but there's so much more than just the aesthetic vision that goes behind building a brand. You have to you have to have one eye on the business the entire time. So sort of reverse engineering into a cost target is really important to us in the strategy that we take. And that comes from the initial sort of you know, market research that one should do before entering or building a company in general is, you know, who are your perceived competitors? And a small note on that is if you're starting up, let's say you're a, you're a startup activewear line, like your competitor is not Nike. Nike is massive and huge and they, you are not playing the game with them. So you have to look around you and see the competitors that are that are there that you strive to be in your first stages. You know, there, there's stages mm -hmm. to building a company and Yes, it seems like some might pop up overnight, but rest assured, they've probably been at it for five to 10 years at least, you know, trying to make it. And so really, it's 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 a reverse engineering into a target cost per unit. It is a very linear process. We don't believe in skipping steps. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't believe in efficiency because we do. Like we've incorporated 3D design. There's a lot of ways to make it efficient. Um, but having said that, like we, we have a sort of milestone process where it's a series of 15 sort of touch points or meetings that need to happen throughout the process from kickoff all the way through to your goods, you know, in your distribution center. And that's not to say that there's constant communication with our clients because there is, but it really is this sort of like program or linear program that they go through with us. And so that's to keep them efficient and to keep them sort of marching to the timeline and the time in action that's necessary and to make sure that no steps are skipped so that in the end, you don't have a botched bulk production mm -hmm. that's costed you hundreds of thousands of dollars and you can't do anything with it. Um, and so, yeah, so it is, it's a linear process and i don't know if that helps answer your question but Yo, uh, for sure I mean, <laughs> yeah, do you have anything to add as well yeah i also wanted to just say about how we interweave branding throughout that process and we've really honed in on how to really maintain brand cohesion through and, and establish a system that can allow you to keep maintaining brand cohesion after you launch so first it's you know, working from uh, with the apparel team and branding team with the client to establish what their overall identity is, what their vibe is, what their brand positioning, like who, who they are, what they're all about, what their voice is, what their mission is. You know, sometimes clients, you know, they know kind of in some ways what that is, but they, they don't necessarily have all the tools or uh, words to communicate it. So we, we help them find the best way to communicate it because that ends up being what's so important when you bring in all of these other people after you get to the, the launch stage with us you're going to need to bring in pr and marketing and 
um, you know, build out your your team and all of these different pieces, and you're going to need to be able to efficiently communicate who, what you're all about, what your visual aesthetic is, what your voice is, and everyone that starts to work with you and implement and grow this brand needs to be able to do it cohesively. Because ultimately, what makes a brand memorable and professional um, is is having that consistent voice. Um, you want every time you know a customer interacts with the brand to have that consistent feeling, and so we, in that sort of linear time and action, we're thinking about every stage of you know when you you know that initial thinking, and then when you need your logo to apply to your label and embroidery, and when you need um, your samples for photography, and when the uh, bulk production is going to be ready to upload your inventory information to your website and what the care instructions are. And so all these different pieces that we're building are all interwoven um, from a logistical perspective as well as a creative perspective. So by the time you launch your website, it's just this one you know, efficient machine and cohesive message. It feels like uh, the position right now is perceived as sort of this blueprint, right? And then every time you approach a new problem, you kind of go back to it and see if uh, this relates to, you know, what you have built before this, right? So, uh, and um, one a question that I want to ask is, among those 15 steps or meetings that Stephanie mentioned, which one seems to have the most amount of recurrent problems that brands or you seem to face every time? Um, it really depends on the brand. I mean, yes, it's linear, but there's obviously a lot of nuances between the brands. I think that in terms of issues, you know, it's, it's typically, well, and it also depends on the bigger world, right? Like Mm. sourcing right now is a massive issue for the entire industry. Supply chain is, is a huge obstacle, which is another reason why you should work with people that know what they're doing um, to troubleshoot that, you know, like right now, that's our biggest issue. So fabric delays, um, mm-hmm. delays from the, from China's just had a massive shutdown from COVID. So we're getting, you know, some factories saying, Oh, we're closed and we don't know when we'll, we'll be back open. We're hoping two weeks. That's very difficult when the process is so timed out, like our time and action calendars every day, something is called out that needs to happen. And so it just starts to push the timeline a bit. Um, but that's the world that we're living in. And so I think it's all about sort of managing your own expectations in terms of, you know, we're living in a world where there are delays, there are delays in cargo, there's delays in fabric deliveries. So build in those delays, you know, and that's, that's a speech that we sort of say up front, as of right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's a big challenge, you know, another big challenge for, I think, founders that are outside of the industry that don't understand fully how it works, when they see like initial prototypes that are like totally off from what they had imagined in their head, it's, that's, it's fine. That's the point of a prototype. You know, a prototype is so that we can start to perfect this garment. It's going from literal paper, 2D to 3D. And so that's a huge jump, you know, in just in the world in general. And so I think yeah. having an understanding that development is so important in your bulk production, I think a lot of founders think that it's, oh, design and then bulk production. Like I designed this and now I produce it. But it, that development stage is everything and it's huge. And so that's, that's I think, one of the challenging things for a lot of people to wrap their heads around is how important proper and professional development is of product. Um, so that's, I think that's what I would say for that one. <laughs> and then plus we work with so many brands who, because uh, we do a lot of photography at the sample stage, right? So we kind mm-hmm. of... Uh, and um, we see that they come not in the form that they wanted to be initially, right? Yeah. And then we even have that kind of conversation is like, 
uh, we have to sort of align on expectations because mm-hmm. uh, the way the, the quality of your product literally impacts the way it's going to be shown on photos, right? Yeah. So we can't create uh, magic out of nothing. We can only reflect on your existing product, essentially, right? Yeah, so that development so seems to be so crucial. When we uh, when we're kind of bringing a, a client to to Square Shot, yeah, a lot of the times there it's a sample that might not totally be 100% ready of what it will be in bulk. So we have to have the conversation of what's Photoshopable and what's not. So sometimes it can be yeah. something small that we can, you know, make true to the final the final product in Photoshop in a way that's not uh, perceived by a customer. Um, but sometimes it's not Photoshopable, <laughs> if that's a word. Um, and so we have to kind of, uh, yeah. you know, maybe it delay definitely the timing a word. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of delays, I know that some brands are more time sensitive than the others, right? Those who are releasing collections for a specific time period. Right. So in terms of crisis management, which is uh, is be- becoming more and more relevant right now, where there's so many, so many things that kind of shift the way the world works. Right. From delays of like the um, I forgot the name of the um, of the ship. Oh, the Evergreen. Yeah, I think it was. The yeah. How it impacted uh, personally, even our business. Right. That we had so many brands come and do rush fees and stuff like this because, because they just wanted to make sure that. They fit in that uh, time period that they're released, that they're um, closing fits, right? And so, question to you: How do you work with crisis management, especially for time-sensitive uh, collections? Yeah, I think you know, for us, our point of view is that time-sensitive collections, it really comes in the wholesale game. So, if you're if you're wholesaling and you've promised a delivery date to wholesalers, if you're direct to consumer, you have the flexibility, you know, whether you think you do or not. And that's one of the sort of, especially if you're from outside of the industry, one of the things that we educate about often is that, you know, you aren't tied to seasonality. You really aren't. Not anymore. You have a world market, you know, you have, mm-hmm. you have people doing things all the time. And so any sort of, especially as founders, especially as a startup, anytime you put sort of self-inflicted deadlines upon yourself, we say, don't do that because there's going to be enough deadlines coming from other places, you know, like you've built that and created that for yourself, you know, and granted, obviously, like if, again, if you have a wholesale account or you're trying to hit a trade show, okay, those are important deadlines. But if it's just because you want it out, then relax and, and not relax, but sort of, you know, let, let it go because there are going to be things that come up. So that's my number one sort of soapbox on that. Um, but number two, crisis management, you know, we've, we've learned over the past, like we didn't have COVID before Mm -hmm. since we started the company in 2014. So we've had to learn how to sort of troubleshoot and figure it out. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do things. You know, you can source sub fabric, you can, you might have to pay more, but it is what it is. You can drop styles, you can push them off to a second collection and maybe, you know, you utilize blanks like from a company like Bella canvas to sort of fill out the line while you're waiting for your cut and sew to come in. There's a lot of different ways you can change factories. And if you're set up properly for development, again, to the professional development part, but if you're set up properly, that transition in manufacturing or those transitions in different vendors aren't going to be as detrimental or catastrophic as it might be if you have sort of all of your eggs in one basket. So I think just 
in general, like making sure that you're diversifying your options and being okay with the idea that you might have to transition, but ultimately being set up properly to be able to make those transitions is really important, um, which is another reason why professional development, again, is super important and that you own all of your IP. That's something yeah. that a lot of founders don't um, understand and, and something that that's my like sort of tip to that is to just make sure you always own your IP. So is not owning your IP a common problem within e-commerce brands, especially new ones? It depends. It depends on your vendor base and it depends on what the factories are, what the certain types of factors and or factories and certain types of vendors that you might be working with. So it is a model out there in multiple different forms where, oh, well, we're because we made the patterns, we own them, you know, or because we because we source the fabric, like we're not going to tell you where that fabric comes from, you know, and you're actually getting it at a resale price via the factories. And so there is a sort of savviness that one needs to have when vetting different vendors. It is it is definitely a get what you pay for industry. Uh -huh. I'm sorry to say that, but it, it, there is certain aspects to that as well. So if something seems like coming in super cheap and you have no idea why, there there are things to to think about in terms of that. You know, things that are quote too good to be true. And one of those things is the ownership over your IP. So it's just one of the things that I say to all clients, whether they work with us or not, to make sure that that's something that they own. Um, yeah, by contract or whatever it may be. And what are some of the measures that you can recommend for brands to stay cost effective? Because we've worked with so many brands that came to us once, right? They've mm -hmm. done their collection, right? And mm -hmm. then we're going to reach out to them in a while and then talk to them. And that was the only collection they've ever released and they closed down, right? It's a yeah. very common thing, especially considering how many e-commerce brands there are right now. Yeah, so yeah. how do you how do you not close down after your first collection? <laughs> Um, a is to make sure that you have enough budget for a second and third and fourth collection. You know, it is very rare, rare or impossible almost even. I don't know of any brands that after their first collection hit and then they were just selling mm -hmm. through because, well, another, another aspect to that is, you know, the world, the world, um, demands content, right? Like on a almost daily basis in terms of social and, and your website or whatever it may be. And so you're going to need new products soon. And so those timelines overlap. You, you might not have even produced your full initial collection before starting design on the second one. And so, you know, at least have a budget for two collections, you know, going out at the very least. Um, so that's one. Number two is don't buy so much inventory, you know, like <laughs> get in as many minimums as possible, even if it, even if it, raises your cost per unit, do it in the name of sort of building brand recognition and building brand equity. And that's, I think, a step that a lot of a lot of people miss is that, you know, you're not going to turn a massive profit right off the bat. Yeah. Most of the times, it's just not going to happen. And so, you know, understand that producing at 50 units per style per color or 100 units per style per color is, is just fine, even if the cost isn't where you would like it in the future. Um, so that's another one. And then I think just making decisions based on cost, not on your, not on your sort of need to perfect or your desire for a certain look or, or a certain fabric, because you know, there are, you might love a fabric, right? But it would bump your retail cost $50 and throw you out of the competition. And that's not probably not a wise decision. If the second fabric does the job, 
You might not love it as much as the first fabric, but it does the job. It's okay. And the consumer is none the wiser that you were even choosing between another fabric and this fabric. So I think kind of getting out of your own head and your own parameters and really understanding that you're building a business, you know, and yes, it's artistic. Yes, it's creative. Yes, it's about you and you're being vulnerable. But in the end, like you have to make money if you want the business to to continue. And so that's, you know, that's how we feel. And I was just going to say that, especially because there are so many founders that are also like working on their creative part and also working brand development, you kind of have to find the balance between being attached to an idea, right? Because if you're too attached, then it might just not work out. Right. Yeah. Right. And, but I would say though, um, on the branding side, we do help kind of navigate like where spending money is important where it's not and kind of help kind of make it as cost efficient as possible. But in general, um, some, some people want to spend as little as possible on branding. And then that, then I'm just like, well, then you're kind of wasting your money on the product because you're not going to be presenting it to, you know, in a way that justifies the quality of the product or anything like that. And so the circumstances in which you don't necessarily need to spend too much on, on branding is when uh, you have something that really, truly is revolutionary, like truly is just so useful that it's going to save people money or save people time or whatever it is. If it's something like that, I can't think of a good example off the top of my head, but if it's something that really like kind of sells itself in a sense then you can just be like, here it is, here's what it does, here's it, what it, it is functionally. And, you know, maybe you can do a Kickstarter or something like that and you can do well. But usually, if it's something that is more about selling a lifestyle and selling a vibe and a culture and a feeling, then if you don't take a lot of time and in a lot of cases put a lot of money and, you know, good talent behind building out that that world of your brand, then it's just going to fall flat. And then it's yes, it costs more upfront, but it's going to put you in a much better position to, to sell. And speaking of presenting your brand, uh, I know Evan, you have experience with the Raptor Club, right? A brand of your own. How sure, much yeah. uh, how much emphasis do you put on content uh, in terms of the presentation? What is your guys approach to content just in general? Because Stephanie, you also mentioned how you consistently need fast paid content for your socials and your website. And what is your approach? Yeah, so um, having done my own personal brand has been really helpful, uh, just in my own sort of ability to speak firsthand on what I've done well or what I've done badly to to a client and having had that hands-on experience in all aspects of it before coming to Stateless was was generally helpful. Um, my main sort of emphasis and time right now goes into Stateless. Uh, so I don't spend as much time on Raptor now. But, um, but initially, yeah, I mean, content was really important to me. What is, I, I think that for some, since Raptor, it's like um, handmade Italian leather basketball-inspired dress shoes. So it was, I was trying to create this more sort of luxurious world. And so because of that, my content, I wanted it to be much more polished than if you were doing maybe like, you know, streetwear, uh, street swimwear, or like, um, you know, skateboarding clothing, you, you might be able to embrace, em, embrace like uh, iPhone footage and things that are a bit more low end and candid and gritty. Um, so for me, it ended up being pretty, 
pretty expensive beyond what I could afford at the time to do, you know, the types of the types of content I wanted to do regularly. Fortunately, I could photograph things or film things myself, which was a huge expense that I could save. But not everyone can do that. Um, so if you are going into a luxury space, I would keep that in mind that it is a bit more expensive to create content regularly at at a high, you know, high polish level. Um, not with square shot, which is nice. So your product shots can be can be really professional as professional as it gets at for a pretty cost effective um, price point. But uh, for the lifestyle, which is like photography, that's kind of out into your brand world where you're hiring models, you're renting locations, you're doing things like that. Um, then uh, in the luxury space, it, it tends to get a bit more more pricey. Um, so those are just and in terms of numbers, is there a specific percentage of your budget that you allocate for content in general? Uh, yeah, on average, our I mean, just off the top of my head, again, like Stephanie said, it's always variable. We're always, you know, we have our systems and efficiencies and things that are proven, but we also leave a lot of room to adapt to, you know, all the different types of brands that we work with and people that we work with. Um, but in general, it ends up being about 20% of the uh, branding budget is usually on content. Um, and that includes product photography, lifestyle photography, and video as well. Um, and then, you know, there's also, if you want to consider content like blog articles and written copy and Instagram posts, like all of these things kind of fall into that category as well. So yeah, I would say roughly 20%. Does that sound right, Stephanie? Yeah, I would say so. I think every brand has its own needs and, and yeah. yeah, some brands are content heavy. It depends. The, the reason I'm asking this uh, initially is that, uh, because we work with so many founders or new founders, right? They they come in and they don't necessarily have budgets for it, right? And then so they're putting uh, money out of their own pocket. And it's much harder to approach content then because if you had a specific budget that you would know what you're like sort of orienting, right? And directing to. But once it starts to come out of your own pocket, right? You start to, maybe I don't need that image. And so you kind of have to find the balance between what you just said before, uh, unless your product is absolutely revolutionary, you're going to have to spend money on making sure that it's seen, right, in sort of its best light, right? And that's why we also recommend to our clients to have these specific budgets, right? Because other than that, you you wasted a product, right? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So um, a lot of things that we help uh, clients navigate, uh, as just an example, is when to use models for photography. So for um, product photography, <clears throat> actually an example of one of our first incubator brands is uh, trying to reimagine the petites category. So for her fit and showcasing fit for women under 5'4 is very important. <coughs> and sorry. <laughs> um, and so having her product shots beyond model was really important. But for other products, you can communicate a lot through just flat lay product shots. And then you can utilize the lifestyle shots with models to showcase how the products fit while you're also showcasing the lifestyle of the brand. So that, and then you can often use lifestyle shots in conjunction with uh, product shots and they can kind of work together to give the full story of what a customer can expect from a product when looking at it on a website. 
but if you were to do models for both, that's a huge expense. Models, especially models that help you save time and make your products look good. It is a very, very in, um, hard skill to do modeling well. You don't just have to be beautiful. Um, so when you're getting good models, they cost several thousand dollars a day. So to kind of do that too many times over too many days, it can really, really add up. So we kind of help think about when, when that's important and that is a microcosm for, you know, content as a whole, branding as a whole, production as a whole, all of it is just thinking about, yeah, where, where is it important to spend a lot on this and where is it not? Especially if you're going to first or that's your entire strategy. What you have to remember is that when a when a shopper, a consumer is shopping on the floor of a store, they can feel and touch and smell the clothes on a rack. All of that sensory is gone when selling D2C. So you have to make up for it. You have to then inform them some way, shape, or form how that sort of product feels and how it how heavy it is in your hands and how it might smell if it's like leather or something that that all needs to sort of be communicated some way because they're not mm -hmm. in front of it and and you're asking them to separate from their money which is one of the hardest things to ask anybody to do you know yeah. and so your content is so important in that regard specifically for d2c yeah and so speaking it, on that what are some of the innovations that made it possible uh, like sort of to communicate that either is 3D or 360 video or anything from that. Do you have any experience? Yeah, we do. We we we've been employing uh, 3D design more so lately. Um, it's still not all the way there, like in terms of its usage, in terms of manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. But it is something that's interesting because you can see it on an avatar, but it's nowhere near at this point seeing it on a real person in, an, in a photograph yet, you know, and, and I'm sure technology changes every day. So it, it will probably get there. Um, and, you know, there's there's certain sort of products like 3D Look is a company. And I know that you can like scan your body and sort of see it on you at the at the point of sale. Um, that's really exciting, too. It's not being widely used yet. But all of these sort of technologies and advancements are coming up that I think will help communicate more on the D2C level, but at its core, and I'm sure Evan was probably going to say this, or maybe he wasn't, but is just that having that brand DNA just sort of super pervasive over the entire brand is so important so that even when you click on the website, you can almost like, you know, if there's a picture of grass, you can almost smell it because it's been that sort of well communicated visually and, and in the copy and in all, you don't even notice why it is that you feel like you're in this world, but you are, you know, and that's, that's, I feel is very important. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, um, photography truly is the most important part of a website. So when I'm working with a client, if they want us to help build a website, I always emphasize, okay, so how are you doing photography if they're not doing it with us yet? Because it just, um, it's just so hard to really accurately convey or get people excited about a product if it's not photographed well. And yes, we're talking with you and Squareshot right now, but I, it, it just that's that's what it is genuinely anyway. And I do feel like um, Squareshot has been a really important innovation in you know, streamlining the process of getting high quality product photography and, and making that more cost effective. Um, it, it just, it, it's a huge, huge thing because it just it instantly ups the overall experience of looking at a website. 
it's just like everything just seems more polished and more trustworthy. That's the, you know, like what Stephanie was saying, like you're, you're asking people to part with their money. You want your, your brands, your, you know, the overall product to feel trustworthy. When you look at terrible photography, you just, you don't want anything to do with it. If it's someone like throwing a product on a bed and shooting it with an iPhone, it's just, you're not going to want to buy that. You're not, even if it's the best product in the world, you're not going to trust it at all. Um, so, so yeah, that's Squareshot has been a huge innovation. And then I would say, um, things like Squarespace also, um, have been huge. And, you know, I used to own a, a web media, uh, company a while ago, and that was before Squarespace and Shopify existed and DIY websites were not a thing and you could not make an e-commerce site yourself. And, um, now being able to have drag and drop tools that to make a really professional, intuitive, beautiful site. And then all of the, the backend stuff being so intuitive. So we, you know, it can be pretty overwhelming and complicated to build it initially, but then we, so that, that part we can take care of, but then we can train the customer on like our clients on how to manage the site going forward and how to fulfill orders themselves and make it really easy. An order comes in, you print your own label, you can do fulfillment from home. All these things were not possible like 12 years ago or, or less. And so those kinds of things are incredible. I know that you guys put a lot of emphasis on resources as well. And I saw on your websites that you, you guys uh, collaborate with funds and what is, uh, based on the amount of experience you have, 90 plus brands, what is your approach to education of those brands? What are some of the, you know, most notable initi initiatives that you guys are doing right now? Like in terms of the process? Yeah. Um, you know, I... Well, I mean, we're, we're actually in the process of creating an upcycling program, which I think is really interesting. We haven't launched it yet, but it's sort of thinking about ways to include upcycling, not just as, oh, I'm a brand that upcycles, but I'm a brand that's trying to fill out the rest of my line with products that have been upcycled, re sort of reimagined. Well, so like you can still have your brand, you can still have your custom cut and sew brand new innovative product, but also with this nod to you know, helping the environment, obviously, and helping yourself, because then you don't have to buy into new inventory, you don't have to really spend as much on development. So, you know, I think, I think like we educate the entire time, you know, like, like our, our process is very informative in terms of bringing product to market and brand to market. So it's just like constant education left and right. And which is really cool, I think, for our clients, especially because they do learn a lot. There's a huge learning curve. But in terms of like our new initiatives, we're really looking at, you know, and driven by even current events, like we're really looking at how do we solve for supply chain issues? How do we set up more properly? You know, what are the types of vendors that need to be out there so that so that that manufacturing becomes more seamless, specifically for people in the US, um, and specifically for smaller brands, you know, so yeah, things like upcycling, sustainability is always a big one. It's such a catch-all phrase. You know, it's like, what does that mean exactly? Um, and yeah, and then I think on the brand side, Evans, I feel like always educating too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's because I, I want to not only just kind of execute, but I want to kind of help people truly understand the value of branding so that they can kind of take that with them as they grow their businesses. Or if they can't afford our full set of services, which you know, we always try to accommodate, then I can at least kind of teach them, okay, here's, here's how to DIY it in the best possible way. And here's, 
um, all the sort of important things to, you know, consider here are the tools and resources and uh, people that you should, you should be working with. And um, yeah, it's because a lot of people come to us and they think a brand is a logo. And we're like, ah, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> so, yeah. And for any uh, people who are just thinking about uh, starting their brands, well, first I'll start with Stephanie. What are the three tips that you can just give them to watch out for, especially especially early on when they're just in the preparation phase? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the number one is not doing sufficient research um, and just sort of jumping in. I've spoken to so many founders that think that their whatever their idea is doesn't exist. And I can point immediately to 200 brands, brands that it does exist. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. just like you know, doing very thorough research. That's not to say that you can't launch that brand. You just have to have a differentiating factor somewhere, you know, in that. Um, so that you can sort of, you know, hang your coat on it. But in terms of, and, and that goes, that's sort of the wider research that's necessary, you know, look at pricing, look at what they're doing with their brands, read Instagram comments on their advertising to see what the feedback is on their own content. And then use that, like you said, in the in the beginning, you know, use other people's mistakes as your, as your jumping off part so that you don't have to make those mistakes. So there's just like thorough research is really important. Um, number two is, and I said this before, but understanding that you are starting a business. Yes, it's a fashion line. Yes, it's apparel. Yes, it's cool. And it's glamorized typically in the media and all of that, which is great and wonderful, but it is a business at its core. So having sort of a core understanding of what does cash in cash out mean? You know, what are my, what are my operating expenses? Why is it important to spend up front on development? Because I can then use those core styles and re and iterate off them collection after collection and not have to invest in development again for a while. You know, all of these sort of core basic business things need to, you need to know that. And so get some of that education behind you, I think is really important outside of the fashion world. Like what does it mean to build a business? You know, um, and then I think third is, and they're kind of cousins, but one is just start. Like, I know I just said, do all the research and stuff, but, but also just start, you know, like I, I, we've talked to clients that have had the idea for three or four years. And it's like, what have you been doing? Like, just start, you know, and, and they're, they're scared and I get that, but you need to start. Otherwise, literally nothing's going to happen. And then in that same right, you can't be a perfectionist. You simply cannot. It, nothing will be perfect ever. And so you need to be flexible flexible. You need to have respect for your vendors. That's a huge one for me. Just respect all the way around. Um, and then, but yeah, flexibility and an understanding that, that a close to your vision is typically good enough, you know, and, and, and being like clear about your priorities and where you're, where you feel okay compromising and not, but understand that compromise will be a part of the process. And so that those would be my three sort of tips there. Fashion business can borrow some, uh, from startups, right? Building MVP, right? And so, yeah. so you, you start from there, you get feedback from the community, you realize what you need to fix, what worked or what didn't, right? And then so that's kind of the approach that seems to be working these days. And Evan, yeah. I'm passing the torch to you in terms of how do you stand out as a brand? Stephanie just mentioned that yeah. probably you're battling against 200 brands or more with a similar approach, similar idea. How do you stand out in terms of branding? Yeah, so I mean... One that is definitely something that, that we look at, like Stephanie was saying, we look at the, the landscape as a whole. So if it is petites, let's say we look at all brands that are specifically focusing on petites and um, 
look at what aren't they doing. And some of it, is, the most basic thing is maybe there's a category where no one's doing it well. <laughs> like that's just like, I know that sounds simple, but like there could be a category where no one is taking a thorough approach to branding, where they have a good sense of typography and spacing and quality photography and good messaging that is, you know, well thought out and has personality. Like all these sort of basic fundamentals of branding, um, a lot of companies just don't do. They just might not know to do it. They might not have the team in place to do it. And so you can simply stand out just by taking a nice high quality approach. But then, of course, we try to go beyond that and try to think about, um, you know, maybe there's there's no edgy version of a petite brand. Or in the case of Isan Rodeo, which is coming out soon, um, she just noticed that the whole petite's market is dainty girly girl brands, you know, floral dresses and the idea of petite, um, even the word is, it just sounds like a very particular type of woman. But she pointed out that it's a quarter of the earth's adult population is women under 5'4". And so obviously there's a ton of personalities within that category and there's a ton of body shapes within that category. So there are, you know, CEOs of major companies that, and there are curvy women and there are, you know, there's just every kind of woman is within that, that height category. And so she started a brand that was just thinking about, well, how do I adjust that? How do I solve that? How do I kind of show this whole different type of personality? Like she doesn't even want to call it petite. She just wants to say that and these are women that are short, but our, our campaign that we came up with, with her is short and because you can be short and so much more. And so mm -hmm. that's like a really great example of just kind of seeing a whole, which is a, it, it could be, it could seem niche, but um, it's actually, that's huge. If you think about how many people fit into this category and will identify with this message. Um, but sometimes it can be really niche. It can be taking, okay, well, there's skateboarding, there's skateboarding brands, but what's some sort of unique version of a skateboarding brand that I can build off of? And then that um, ultimately can kind of, you can grow off of that too. So even if your initial target market is very small, you know, Amazon just starting with books, you know, like you're saying, like it, it is very similar to any sort of tech startup. You can, you can hit a, a very small niche and then you can kind of build off of that more and more. And, and thinking about that model and that trajectory is really important. So what is your immediate vision, keeping it focused, and then how can you grow from there? I feel like Brancheski said it well, that it's better to have 100 loyal customers than a thousand customers that are just A-OK -okay with your brand, right? Yeah. So yeah. I yeah, appreciate and that's, you guys. That's actually a really good point because we, we, we try to really make it so one of the points of emphasis is what's going to make someone love your brand? What is going to make someone care so much about it that they're going to shop over and over again? Even if you have a unique idea, eventually someone's going to copy it, most likely if it's a great idea, if it's an innovative product from a functionality standpoint. So you still need to care about building that sort of deep love <laughs> with your with your customers so that when the competitor, competitors come out, they're still going to want to shop with you because you've kind of bonded with them in this in this way that they're proud to wear your logo and they're proud to kind of come to your events or participate in you know uh, a podcast or something like that that you put out
I think there are a lot of very, very valuable points you guys made. So I appreciate your experience. I think your experience is invaluable just because you have so much of it. So it's really, really cool. So I thank you for coming on to the podcast. I think I'm, I'm happy to kick off this season with you guys. And there's so many more episodes to come. So I hope to have you on again because there's so many things to talk about more, right? Yeah. So thank you yeah. guys. We really, really yeah, appreciate yeah, we it. It was great talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Square Talk. If you like what we're doing and found interesting insights for yourself, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It helps us to grow and explore more industry topics. Also, if there are niche concepts that you'd like us to explore, please comment under the video and we will make it happen.